Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is all about storytelling. I am Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And I am Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. For our third episode, we're going to get to know each other a little better with the question, who is your favorite storyteller? Talk about what we've been watching and reading since our last episode. And then we'll turn to our main topic, inspired by the upcoming Festival of Passover, storytelling. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we will dust off some of our favorites, adaptations of the Exodus story and the Harry Potter novels. So, Andrew, yes. for this week's getting to know you question, who is your favorite storyteller? So I chose to focus on Orson Scott Card. And I like so many authors, and he's written some of my favorite series. He wrote the Ender series, Ender's Game, and then the many books after that, the Seventh Sun series, Memories of Earth, and the not-as-well-known Stone Tables, which is his adaptation of the Exodus story that focuses on Moses and Aaron. I love how Card can evoke so much background with a minimum of details and draw you into the worlds he's creating or the realities he's writing about and take the journey with his protagonist just wholeheartedly. And as a fun fact about him, he actually is the author of the script that was used for the Hill Kimura pageant, which was a major annual event for the Church of Latter-day Saints until a couple years ago in Palmyra, New York. And I had the opportunity to actually see one of the dress rehearsals for one of his last couple years being performed, which it no longer is. And he wrote the script for that in the 80s when they felt the need to create a newer version. And he is, of course, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. He's just a yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal author in so many ways. Who is your favorite storyteller? Well, before we get into that, though, I, I have questions. I'm curious about, like, sure. so what is this pageant? What's so the Hill Kimura story? And on point for our topic today, the Hill Kimura pageant is set at the site where that church believes Joseph Smith found golden tablets that have been left there a long, long time ago by people who had encountered Jesus after he died. He came to North America, spoke to people there, they were done what he said, and then buried the tablets. And they basically tell the story of the Book of Mormon, not the musical, the actual Book of Mormon, <laughs> in this live, like hundreds of people in like costumes and beards and wigs and pyrotechnics and stunts and water effects story live for the audience. And it is fascinating. They did it for like 60 or more years live wow. every year on, the, on, on the, the Hill Kimura where that's located. And it's a fascinating, you know, important, you know, live storytelling of their core master narrative. And hmm. their leader, their prophet said, it's no longer having the impact we wanted. We're going to shift our energies somewhere else now. And they have shut hmm. down the pageant. It's like family camp. They go there for two <laughs> weeks. They rehearse, they practice, they get ready. And then they, they do a one week run. Then they head back home after their really awesome summer family experience. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. I never, I never knew about that. I never heard about that, which is really interesting considering that my 
father grew up in Salt Lake City and I spent many summers there with my grandparents as a kid and would have thought that I my, my that side of the family is not Mormon but I would have thought just you know by being around it that I would have it, somebody would have brought it up at some point or another but I guess not I had never heard of it till I moved to Syracuse New York 12 years mm. ago heard about it as oh yeah it's a, definitely like a bucket list thing you should do which is go and see it one summer and I'm glad I finally did. Great. So who is your favorite storyteller? So I don't know if I can ever pick a favorite, but one storyteller that I really enjoy is Neil Gaiman. And as we were talking a bit about before we started recording, he's one of these authors that has been on my list of people to read for a long time. And so some of his best known adult fiction like American Gods and Good Omens with Terry Pratchett, I have not read. However, I have read the entirety of the Sandman series, of course watched the show based on it, which was amazing. And I've read a lot of his kids and young adult stuff, started reading some of that with one of my children. And he's just He's just such a great storyteller, both in terms of just the the concepts and ideas that he comes up with, his knowledge of a lot of different bodies of literature, canons of various religions, mythology, and that he's able to bring in and weave together so well and to do it in a in a way that's fun, that's humorous. And it's really a gift, I think, for him to be able to tell stories in a variety of different formats. He writes novels for adults. He writes books that are appropriate for kids that still, but that still have his signature as an author. You can still tell it's, it's him, but oriented for children. One of my favorite children's books is Blueberry Girl. It's a children's book, illustrated picture book that he wrote that's illustrated by Charles Vess, who has done, who was also, has also done a lot of comic book illustration and other illustration for books that he wrote for his friend, Tori Amos, when she was having a baby. His ability to, to tell stories in a variety of different formats, including the comic book or graphic novel format, you know, he's not drawing the illustrations, but to tell stories in that format requires a different kind of mentality and shift. You know, you're talking from the perspective of the characters. You don't have as much written description of what's going on. You're going to be relying on the illustrator to help bring some of that to life. And he's just able to tell stories in a lot of different ways like that. And I, I really appreciate that. And he brings, you know, a level of sophistication, I think, to genres that sometimes are sort of outside of the mainstream or was definitely part of that early, you know, indie comics, elevating comics and the graphic novel to a genre that sort of catching the attention of people sort of outside of like the core comic book audience that had existed before the 80s and 90s. I remember hearing about the Sandman graphic novels, but never read them. And I read Good Omens in college or soon after college, loved it. I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. And he's definitely an author I want to read more of and love the Good Omens show and love the Sandman show as well. He's on my I want to read him soon list. 
<laughs> for sure. All right. So, what have you been watching or reading lately? At your recommendation, Andrew, I have been watching Carnival Row, which is on Amazon Prime. The basic overview for listeners who don't know is it's set in a world that looks remarkably like late 19th century London. The place is called The Burg, where most of the action is set. It's part of this fictional world. They are one of the world powers. Another one that they are have been in conflict with traditionally is the Pact. There is a land where the Burg and the Pact had been fighting a war that contains or is inhabited primarily by people who are known as the Fae that are various species of what we would consider to be mythological creatures. So there are fairies, there are fawns, there are, I don't remember the names of all of the different species that exist, but there are a number of different ones. And they're referred to somewhat disparagingly by the people of the Berg as a critch. So many of them to escape the war and the, the invasion by the pact are able to escape and come and settle in the Berg. And they're somewhat second class citizens in the Berg. There's discrimination against them. It's clear there are clear parallels to other minority or marginalized populations that we know about in in history, including like Jewish communities in various places, as well as people of various different racial and ethnic backgrounds who have been marginalized in in society. So they are kind of limited from being able to hold certain kinds of positions. I don't know if it's really a at the beginning of the show a legal limitation on what they're able to do or if it's just by custom and the fact that most of the fae are recent arrivals to the burg are starting out without having many resources and having to kind of build from there. So, but when there is a character, Mr. Agreus, who is a fawn, who had managed to throwing some of his own people under the bus, make a bunch of money, and now he moves into a house in the fancy neighborhood where no, no fae have lived before and begins to circulate in human society in ways that make a lot of people really uncomfortable. And so that's a, a major focus of a lot of the plot is, you know, how do people interact with him? What are sort of the limits of how far someone from a fae background can advance before limitations are imposed? Of course, there's also then, you know, the blaming or scapegoating of the fae for internal problems that then becomes a political rallying cry and results in the Fae then being further constricted to the area that they primarily live in, which is Carnival Row. It becomes a ghetto. Essentially, in a lot of ways, reminds me very much of images of Jewish ghettos from World War II, particularly the Warsaw Ghetto. It is surrounded by walls, heavily guarded. People are 
dying in the streets. There's limited access to having enough food, medicine, other supplies. There's just the brutality that's being carried out by the guards, by the police, who prevent them from going in and out. And right, just the sort of daily exposure to violence reminds me very much of, of historical accounts of, of life in in some of these ghettos. One of the things that I thought was one of the most interesting scenes was when Vignette, who's one of the main fairy characters, encounters this museum that's been created out of a temple or kind of a library that had been lifted from her home and reconstructed in the Berg. And there's a group of humans who are touring it. You know, it's a fun, you know, cultural experience for them. And she is watching from the corner and kind of realizing that this place that is so sacred to her is now just an amusement, a casual amusement for people that don't really consider her and her her fellow Faye to be fully equal or fully worthy as people. And she kind of flips out this outrage that she has over their creation kind of of her story, cultural appropriation. She gets arrested as a result of that. <clears throat> and I think it connects with the topic that we're engaging with today, which is, right, who has the authority to tell your story? And of course, there are, you know, many connections that we can see between that scene and what has happened in, in the past, you know, the creation of museum exhibits and memorialization to cultures and communities that have been marginalized or wiped out. Uh, as you hear about the plans for the Nazis creating a museum to the extinct Jewish people. There's like this weird impulse that can happen of people to, to preserve the cultural patrimony of people, even while those people have been kind of suppressed or maybe even wiped out. That was a monologue. Andrew, do you have anything yeah. to say? A lot of the people, a lot of the Fae living in the Berg, like a lot of new refugee populations, work as domestic workers. And the pixies who have wings, they have to actually like bind their wings while they're working and they cannot mm -hmm. fly. So a lot of like the pixies have restrictions on what they can actually do, specifically flying and having their wings exposed, which mm -hmm. is really who they are. It's really interesting sort of seeing them have like to subsume themselves to survive and to be able to work among humans. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the other major occupation that we see picks in, in particular engaging in is prostitution. There's right. these special brothels that humans in particular seem to be frequenting. And it seems like I, I don't think I've ever seen any of the other types of fae in the show working there. It was all picks and they all for some reason had their hair dyed bright colors. Right. The picks are the most human human like among all of the fae. And I guess that might be about, true. They even talk about in the uh, later in the second season about the humans having a really hard time 
being intimate with fawns in particular, like the hoofs and the horns are just like a difficult barrier. But that's mm -hmm. that, that seems like as a real like a beauty barrier for some that they overcome. Mr. Agreus in particular and his neighbor, they they overcome that clearly. Did you finish season two yet? I have not yet finished season two. Okay, I mean, I, I did see their their first encounter scene and they did not seem to be having any problems. No. But when you, meet, um, when you meet the new dawn, they talk about it. Okay. Right. So when I have met the new dawn, I don't know that I either missed it or have not. Right, yeah. That topic comes up. Yet. Yeah. I've also always wondered about the Fae and the the humans because the Fae have these wings and then there's like these scenes of them in the brothels and then somehow they're like levitating with their customer. Mm -hmm. right? It just doesn't seem like those wings would support that much weight. Clearly the in-world physics of the Pixies wings, that they are extremely able to lift a Pixie body and a heavier human body at the same time, which definitely defies our laws of physics. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. But right, but the exotic the exoticization of right. refugees, immigrants, foreigners mm -hmm. definitely is what they're playing on there as well, for definitely. sure. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. I think I, I enjoyed like the whole thing. It's very interesting. Right. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Not only that, I mean also when you're saying that the exoticization, you know, the the social position of the half human, half fey individuals right not not accepted fully by either society um, mm -hmm. kind of seen as being pathetic by both is, is also you know kind of something that resonates with the experiences of people of you know multiple racial backgrounds and how that's played out historically in various places and, and his own struggle yeah. with where he belongs right yeah, it's Philo. Philo's yeah, yeah, Philo, yeah. who is the other male lead, played by Orlando Bloom from Lord of the Rings. He's yeah, who I somehow did not mention in my entire description. I was mostly focused on Vignette. Okay. Yeah, and well, she, she's an important main character. There's a lot going on. Okay, so what have you been watching? I have been continued to watch The Mandalorian season three, which I am enjoying. And finally, a couple YouTubers in particular talked to people who know enough about Judaism to get the good Jewish read on Mandalorian season three, specifically Ryan Airy from Screen Crush and Alan from Generation Tech. They each got it finally, which is great. So they mentioned that the Mandalorians say they are scattered like stars in the sky, definitely evoking what God says to Abraham about being as numerous to the stars in the sky and the Jewish people now being in exile. Their homeland, which they are exiled from, remains cursed. It is in ruins. They can't go back there. And there's, there's a story that, that it's so cursed that they cannot go back, which may be a way of actually using a story to keep people away. So the use of story within a story to create a certain reality definitely plays a part there. There are various factions within the Mandalorian, different levels of tradition being observed. Do you remove your helmet or not, etc. And there's the refrain, this is the way, especially for the more hardcore Mandalorians. And this is the way, just all Jews were like, oh, you mean halakha? 
which is a word that means Jewish law or practice, which means the way. So many Jews were like, yeah, got it. Cool. They wear head coverings either all the time or sometimes. That feels very Jewish. The, 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 they care for the young, transmitting their way to the next generation. Clearly also a Jewish concern. Also a good pre-Passover tie-in. They have their sage, who is the armorer, because their, their armor is sacred to them. So they also have like sacred garments. We have tefillin and tzitzit, fringes and phylacteries. And they have their armor, which made from beskar, their sacred metal. And they have legends about sort of a messianic leader who will be their leader who will arise, who will be their chosen leader to take them back to their homeland and lead the Mandalorian people back to their former glory. You know, the question is who will be their Moses is right now an open question. Will it be Bo-Katan, Din Djarin, Grogu, unclear. But clearly there's like a revival in the works for Mandalore and we're all dying to see who it's gonna be. So I'm just glad that some of the YouTubers that I watch finally got cued in on all the Jewish themes happening in the Mandalorian, and it's yeah, it feels, it feels very Jewy to me, for sure. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Have you been watching it? I have not. I, I there's so many great things that sound really interesting that I wish I could keep up with, but it's definitely on the list. So yes. maybe during Passover break. I'll maybe during this. Passover, you watch it during the Seder as an Exodus story. Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, All right. On, to our, on to our main topic, which is storytelling. Telling one story to the next generation in various sci-fi and fantasy literatures is a common trope. And at some point, that story becomes a sacred narrative, becomes scripture. And that's something that we see within Israel's scripture as well, where there is an experience and then there's the command to tell that story of that experience to the next generation in an amorphous form in the book of Exodus. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, the later books that people often have not read, there is this explicit like, here is the five books of Moses. This is now our core narrative that tells of our experience and it becomes adopted as sacred canon at that point and so we're going to talk about how stories become canon and then what happens to that canon over time as that story moves through generations so right and yeah why now and also what's the sci-fi fantasy connection if you want to jump back in a minute to to talk a little bit more about that. So we're talking about this now because storytelling is really at the heart of the way that we celebrate Passover or Pesach in the Jewish community in the Passover Seder, which is based on these four verses that we see kind of embedded in the Exodus narrative from the book of Exodus of children asking and parents talking about what happened about the story. We've created a retelling of this story that is engaged in, in Jewish households and communities every year of asking about the holiday and all of the strange 
foods and rituals that are done as part of the, the Seder. And it, it's perhaps something that we might come back to in, in a bit, right? Storytelling, as we see here, and as Andrew, you were talking about just a minute ago, is such a central part of what it means to practice Judaism. I think it is, in for at least for me, I would say that telling the story is kind of the focal point of Jewish religion in a lot of ways. And we use storytelling in this sort of non-systematic way to talk about who we are as a people, what's meaningful to us, what our values are. So as opposed to maybe some other traditions that might have created a more systematic theology or philosophy, the way that we learn about who we are, the way that we learn what those values are, is through the telling of the story. Telling of the story in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and the way that that story has been expounded upon in later rabbinic writings, in Midrash in particular, which we'll have a chance to, to come back to. Did you want to say anything about the connection with sci-fi fantasy? I think that Tanakh in general and sci-fi and fantasy in general all function in very similar ways in that so many bodies of work of sci-fi and fantasy have become for their audiences almost like a kind of sacred canon and then there's also this parallel process of writing extended stories within that world which is so much like rabbinic midrash that we were wondering if the even if the difference really is only even a matter of time like in mm -hmm. a thousand years what will people look at as sacred canon that they actually organize their lives around in ways that we do around tanakh and its commentaries so i think there's so many points of connection that are just ripe for exploration and discussion yeah definitely so yeah you, you, so you have the question what elevates a body of work to become sacred scripture which i think was just a fascinating question like what has to be present for that to happen so one of the things that i've been thinking about with this is right how much does it matter that you need to have a community that is oriented and values a particular body of work in order to have it elevated to be the status of of canon or sacred sacred scripture and we, we spent a bit of time talking about people maybe having their like personal or individual canon like the you know books that you've read or movies that you've watched or other things that were personally significant to to us as individuals that we you know create meaning from versus having a communal canon which is this like agreed upon set of literature or material that we agree as a community is meaningful and important I think one thing that comes to my mind about that, I guess I'm thinking about like specifically like the archetypal Star Trek convention is that like loving Star Trek, and this can be for so many other fandoms in general, 
loving a particular body of work so much so that you begin to organize at least parts of your life around it. Like watching it becomes ritualized, talking about it becomes ritualized or just done on a regular basis. And then even traveling to places to meet other people to then further talk about it and dress up about it. That feels like a pilgrimage festival to me, Hmm. a very religious act with religion writ large. And then to, you know, meet the people who are acting in it, writing in it, producing it, and to hear them talk about it. All of these things function as a kind of civic religious behavior that to, to me just really that feels like it's become not scripture per se but certainly a book that begins to influence how people actually live that but that becomes a kind of canonization that leads to affecting how one lives one's life right i actually i gotta tell you a weird story i was in a bookstore in san diego several years ago and I saw a guy who was wearing, this is during Deep Space Nine Star Trek series, he was wearing a Bajoran earring. And I said to him, pardon me, are you Bajoran? Because that's the kind of thing I say to people. He said, why, yes, I am. I go, fascinating. When did you become Bajoran? I am totally playing along. He said, I decided Earth was kind of sucky poo, and I chose to not be from Earth anymore. I said to him, cool, have you watched Deep Space Nine to extract from it Bajoran philosophy and way of life? He said, no. I said, well, maybe you should. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be with him, I'll take it. You know, like he was, kind of, he was clearly beginning to identify with a particular kind of people in Star Trek and hadn't done the work. I was frustrated. Hmm. I, this that's... Is a real, that's a true story. I actually met that guy. So that's a really interesting story. And it immediately also makes me think about like, both of us are involved in various degrees in welcoming people into the Jewish community who express an interest, who did not start out their lives as Jewish and express an interest in Judaism. And people come from all kinds of different backgrounds and previous knowledge. But one of the things that we've talked about sometimes is that, right, like what is what is the starting point of information that people might have about what it means to be Jewish? There's a parallelism that I'm hearing with this guy's story and your response to him, which is like, oh, go and watch this important series that's going to give you more information about what it actually means. And that a lot of our work also involves kind of like helping guide people to the right resources to help them learn about what it means to be Jewish and whether that's an appropriate fit for them. Wondering kind of what you think about that. No, it's a good fit. That was in my snarky pre-rabbinical school days for sure. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think I was applying and I had already even gotten in and was living in San Diego at the time. I was definitely clearly thinking about what it means to be part of a community and I met this individual and I said all those things. I don't know what he did afterwards. I'd love to know. Mm. Actually, like, did he stay Bajoran? Did he become more Bajoran? I have no idea. I don't know. But I, I do think, I do tell people who are converting to Judaism that one crucial aspect of it is to internalize 
our sacred narratives. You know, mm-hmm. Tanakh simplified down to five stories, the creation narrative, the Exodus narrative, the standing at Mount Sinai, revelation narrative, and then going into and out of the land of Israel. Like those are the mm-hmm. five big narratives that are what the Tanakh captures on parchment that then become <laughs> how how we organize individual life and communal life for people's lifespans as an individual and part of their families and as a Jewish community over the course of the year. And yeah. I, I have I have said and I will say again that all Jewish rituals is essentially LARPing either some aspect of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Asa, and Rachel and Jacob's and Leah's family, or LARPing some moment within Israel's collective history. And all rituals are tied back to recreating or reliving or role-playing some of those moments. So mm-hmm. storytelling is woven into the fabric of Jewish life, not only just like hearing this, but actually acting it out in some eh, concrete to abstract kind of way. Yeah. So I just wanted to define for listeners who may be coming in with more of the Jewish background and less of the nerdy sci-fi fantasy world. LARPing is live action role play, which is something that people who are parts of of certain fandoms might engage in and among other people. And this is super interesting because we're now going in a different direction than our conversations have taken us before, which is as you were talking about, right, when working with people who are going through the conversion process to become Jewish and internalizing the story. I was just wrote down a note here, like thinking about, right, the the role that these rituals and particularly the Passover Seder play in helping us, um, whether we're people who are learning about Judaism or born into Jewish families and raised with Jewish tradition, to really internalize and see ourselves in the story and as part of that story. And the Passover Seder is, I think, the place where we do that in the most direct way, which is really, you know, we say, that in every generation, every person is, it's incumbent upon them to see themselves as if they personally went out from Egypt. So it is, we are invited into really doing that, that either live action role play or imagining ourselves really feeling that we're a part of the story. And the ritual of doing that, I think helps, you know, it's not just an intellectual thing of, you know, listening to the Torah being read. This is one of the things we were talking about too. It's like, we read the Torah on an annual cycle. So the story is kind of what sets our, the tempo for the year and we always we make a whole celebration out of the act of completing the reading of the torah and starting it all over again but at passover in particular like that's like this moment where there's the the deepest kind of like embodied reenactment and engagement with the story that i think is really important in kind of like embedding and encoding that story and make helping people really feel a part of it 
What do you think? Yeah, they, some people have, have the custom of actually wearing traveling clothes and actually cosplaying that we just left Egypt and are now on the road to the land of Israel. Yeah, I think specifically kids dress up and then adults would then interview them, you know, where have you been? Where are you going now? To have the kids inhabit the role of Israel having just been freed from Egypt. So, and that's a really old custom. I forget which community does that the most. I think it's somewhere North Africa or Middle East. It's, yeah, it's definitely North and African. I think it was Moroccan. I think I, would, I yeah, first learned cool. about this in, or really saw it last year. I can't remember exactly which community, but that, oh, it in, there was a Haggadah that someone was showing me that had been created I think in that for the Syrian community and they uh -huh. had the whole script like in Arabic in like transliterated Arabic because that was the language that that people were asking these questions like where are you where are you leaving from and where are you going which is really interesting right taking the commandment to see yourself as if you actually left very seriously and say yeah let's role play that and at the satyrs people role play that which is fascinating not how i grew up it is definitely not the satyr i grew up with which was much more of this passive recipient storytelling and less the active we're telling the story together in a role-playing kind of way it's interesting seeing the role-playing thing sort of be rediscovered and come back especially since role-playing games and cosplay are much more part of mainstream culture or less marginalized and more out in the open, whether they're mainstream or not, people are more aware of it. So it's sort of like it's it's a, all of a sudden it's something old feels familiar, which is interesting within Jewish ritual. Yeah, before we went on that direction, some of the things that you were saying when you were talking about the development of of fandoms and conventions and things like that was the, one of our other questions, which is when does fandom, right? we were talking about scripture in particular, literature, when does literature become canon? When does it become kind of considered sacred? But when does a fandom maybe cross into something that we might call religion? Like what are the, like, what do we think might be like the criteria that like make something start to seem like, though this is like really a community or maybe we want even want to say religion and also, right, we were talking in reference to the canon, right, the connection maybe between the canon and the fandom is the literary production of that fandom, which is fan fiction. And we can talk a bit about its relationship to the canon and also seeing, you know, its connection, as we have both made, to Midrash, right, which is a Jewish literary form of relating to and expounding upon the received sacred scripture so yeah what do you think so what if a piece of literature becomes canon when there is fan fiction written about it when that core literature becomes so deeply held and embraced and enshrined even by one person that they begin to write fan fiction around it now 
I'm not saying that that's necessarily all fan fiction, but certainly that's certainly a, a, a candidate criteria that I throw out there. So, you know, that might be when something becomes canonical for one or more people is when they begin to create more stories like this because writing of extended narratives beyond the ones that are in print from the official author that is in many ways a religious activity because they're seeing themselves in the story to some extent they've embraced that story in a very personal way to a certain extent and now they're for clear for clear reasons writing more stories about it because they want to see Mm -hmm. more stories there's more questions they would like the narrative to address or the narrative raises mm -hmm. questions that they want to address in their filling in the gaps and the narrative extension whatever it might be which is so much like what the rabbis do there's like that question that the, that the narrative raises or gaps to be filled and the rabbis want to come in and like address the questions fill in the gaps in the way that they see it so there's this reading of oneself mm -hmm. into the scripture through the writing of fan fiction slash midrash and that may be right. that yeah. may be what defines something as canonical is, is that process that's a possibility that's really interesting because it's also bringing it it kind of i think works against what we typically think which is that oh you know there is the canon and then this other stuff is like added in later but i think what we're talking about is more of a reciprocal or like dialectical process. There need to be people who are engaged actively with a body of literature. And then that thing is what actually makes that body of literature the canon, that engagement with it. And also, I mean, I was going to say, right, as you were talking, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, we're focusing on the narrative piece right now, which makes sense. We're talking about storytelling. But of course, at least for Judaism, there are actually two different categories of Midrash. Often when we say Midrash, we mean Midrash Agadah, but there's also Midrash Halacha, which right, is the narrative trying to interpret because they're right. So it's not in Judaism, at least it's not just about narrative. It's also about, right. There's questions that certainly come up in the narrative, but it's also trying to figure out, okay, like these sections that give us commandments or mitzvot that we that God is described as asking of the Jewish people. Okay, how do we actually carry that out? What does this thing mean when it says, you know, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy? Okay, what does that mean? And engaging in this in this process of trying to figure out, okay, how do I align my life in order to live out what is being expressed in this body of literature. I think your story about the guy that you met in the comic book shop, I think though points to that there could be, at least for some people, a way in which they are actually reading or watching a body of work to try to derive these principles, of like an underlying like philosophy or set of practices that they want to engage in. Oh, I certainly was on his case to do that. He clearly adopted a mode of dress or a certain external identifying earwear to mark. It was a very clearly Bajoran earring. 
that it was a clasp with a chain to a second piece. I'm like, oh yeah, Bajoran. But if you don't have, so if there's a body of work, sci-fi fantasy that is narrative and you want to live by it, well, then you've got to do some really, really creative exegesis on those narratives to extract mm -hmm. that practices. You know, like if, if you are a Harry Potter fan, you know, how you dress is pretty clear. You dress in a lot of crushed velvet, uh, <laughs> and baggy clothes and capes and robes. You know, there's certainly, and that's, that's very doable. And, you know, for other literatures, you know, it's always, always curious, like how one would do that. You know, Star Wars, you know, mm -hmm. you know, how could you extract from the Star Wars canonical material if you're going to identify as Jedi or, God forbid, as Sith, you know, things you would actually <laughs> like do in your daily life to embody those individuals who have that identity. I think Australia mm. actually had to recognize Jedi as a religion. People kept writing it in the census. They go, fine, Jedi is a religion. Happy now, people. It's like, it's like mm. thousands of people was... identify as Jedi in Australia. Uh, I don't know what they do about it. I don't know if they get together on the weekends and talk about stuff. They should, because that's how I roll. But are there like Jedi churches or temples? It's, they should call it temples, of course. Mm. I don't know what they do about it. Do they like, you know, open up a, a DVD player and like watch a portion and like expound upon scripture of Star Wars? That's what I would do. Heck, that's what I do. Like I watched that the is what we do. I watch the Mandalorian and then I go to YouTube to watch commentators talk about exactly. it. Exactly. That's right. what I do. So I just don't do it on a scriptural cycle. I do it on a, whenever I get to watch the show in YouTube cycle, but that's kind of what we do. I'm just engaging mm -hmm. in the same Jewish activity with the Mandalorian as I do with the book of Leviticus. It's the same thing. Yeah. And you know, we were talking a little bit about this, right? The like, proliferation of commentary on the internet, like for all kinds of things, for extremely, you know, popular mainstream shows. I mean, used to see like a week by week, there was always like the recap, either videos or articles that were written in various things where people were, you know, talking about the, the most recent episode, engaging with, you know, questions about, okay, what's coming next? What have we already seen? Are there any clues or hints about what's to come, including in genres that are not sci-fi fantasy? And it's become a really mainstream common activity, I think, that people have like their shows or that they follow. And then there's this community community building potentially activity that happens afterwards which is like taking apart the episode and thinking about what might be coming next so in those cases it's a little bit different than maybe what we might see with some of these fandoms which maybe we want to talk about for for a minute in just a second which is right these are shows that as they're being released people are watching them and engaging with them and you don't know the end of the story of course with Torah, which we read on an annual cycle, we know the story and we read it over and over again. And we were talking a little bit about how there might be this ritualization of engagement, either with the literature in different ways that we might see in different fandoms too. I definitely experienced the release of Star Wars movies as a kind of revelation. Like it actually, I was aware, I was acutely aware that when George Lucas wrote 
the next movie, I guess specifically The Phantom Menace, it was like a Star Wars version of standing at Sinai to get the next book of the Bible. It was very much like <laughs> it really was. It was a quasi-religious experience. There were throngs of people. Many were in cosplay. It was extremely exciting. Were we disappointed? Yes. Yes, we were. <laughs> have we gotten over it? Most of us have. I actually like the prequel trilogy quite a bit in many ways. But it was definitely a quasi-religious experience. Mm -hmm. because, yeah, I organized like parts of my life around seeing that opening day twice. Yeah. It was, it was huge. It was huge. So, I mean, this will connect in our to our next section but for me the closest experiences that i've had to that were with harry potter i was you know less of a like not a hardcore harry potter fan i certainly enjoyed it growing not a up Potterhead. But, uh, i i was a little bit a little bit older than like the group that started reading them like at the beginning and following Harry through as he as he got older, but you know definitely right. Th this was the time when when a new book was released, people would like buy their advanced copy and line up at midnight at brick and mortar bookstores to get their copy. It's when then we had the movies being released and the you know midnight showings of the movies. So I never stood in line for a copy of the book, but I did go a couple of times, mostly because I was with friends who were so inclined to go to the you know midnight first release showing of of the new harry potter movies as they were coming out and right it was the same thing it's like the people waiting in line many people in costumes there was one where some people tried to get up and do like i don't know some kind of like puppet performance or something and i don't know the rest of the audience was like not necessarily into their their thing is just you know wasn't really part of the the organized program and nobody was expecting it to happen so it didn't kind of bombed but i appreciate their effort yeah but yeah that that like creation of this this buzz around it the movies i think had a little bit of a different vibe than like the revelatory experience you're talking about because people already knew what the plot was more or less because they had read right. the books how they carry. but the books certainly were like okay that's it like was it was a, it was it was a, a, an ongoing revelation and mm -hmm. there's certainly you know one could talk about torah as ongoing revelation or given all at once you know like series of books as ongoing revelation where it comes out in pieces over time at camp rama the summer camps that we're affiliated with a lot of the books came out during summer Mm -hmm. out during camp specifically and so a lot of parents would send their kids a copy of the book to camp and camps had to a lot of the camps had to teach some basic manners like you <laughs> not spoil the book like, until you know your entire cabin has read it you say nothing i think even rabbi lauren sykes a camper ma in georgia he actually dressed up as dumbledore and hand delivered the books to the kids who got them <laughs> in their cabins. It was like they made a little ritual out of it. You know, yeah. in this very Jewish setting, there was this interesting intersection of like this fantasy world and the camp world where they would give the kids the books, you know, dressed up as yeah. himself, 
And that was very sweet and very clever of Rabbi Sykes to do that. It's very <laughs> clever. They should have gotten some owls to deliver them. That would have been extremely difficult. They're very, especially <laughs> as the series wore on. But as you're talking. Like, but like, but that's how important the books were, is that mm -hmm. it was like, it was an event, which is fascinating. It is fascinating. And especially like, I mean, I'm having so many thoughts about this in the context of camp in particular, but like first, my first thought was when you were talking about, okay, needing to tell kids, you can't spoil the book until everyone in your bunk has read it. I was almost imagining, you know, oh, there might be like a few kids who are the lucky few who got the copies of the book. And imagine, you know, I'm, I'm curious about like, what was sort of core for people or was it, the ritual is that you need to read the book individually yourself, or you could alternatively imagine a community reading. Like, and so then I'm like, if the kids of Camp Ramah were as enthusiastic about going to services and hearing the Torah read as they were about Harry Potter, right? Like, I can almost imagine this whole thing, like a la, you know, the the way that the ritual is first described in Ezra and Nehemiah so the story is, you know, they're coming back from having been exiled into Babylonia and Ezra institutes the reading, the gathering together and the reading of the Torah in a community setting. He's saying, you know, you do it and you read the whole thing all at once and everyone's there. But I'm like imagining, you know, the kids like sitting around listening in this group with rapt attention to you know, the Harry Potter book being read and like, you know, having this like whole event. It's like, you're going to read it until it's done. And I don't know, like the, um, the kind of like excitement that we, you know, aspire for people to have, at least in, in community. Right. The know? Nehemia 8 version of a Harry Potter release is y'all sit down and we read the whole thing out loud all at once. Exactly. I did that exactly. privately. I remember for book five, my family was out of town. I bought the book, came home, sat down, read part, went to bed, woke up, finished the book. That was what mm -hmm. I did for a day. I was mm -hmm. on vacation. I just, I just plowed through the book, did not stop, did not savor it, just ate it in one extended long gulp. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was delightful. I read it again later, more slowly. But yeah, it's, it's very, it was a very in exciting, thing to like get something so exciting and so new and i agree if only we had that kind of voracious appetite for the ongoing rereading of the torah and its commentaries that would be amazing that is certainly you know not necessarily how it always goes down so yeah but i will just sort of say on that note i mean we are both people who have chosen to make our careers around reading and engaging with this literature and at least I would say, yeah, my enthusiasm is certainly like is often at that level. And like, I think one of the things that I find the most exciting about it, kind of going back to our conversation around fan fiction and Midrash, is that it's not just this is it, it's closed and you just listen to it and that's the end of the story. It's that I think a key piece of this is the ongoing engagement with it that I get to have a voice in response to what I'm hearing, in response to what's going on in my life. I read the same book on a cycle every year, and every year I hear it differently. And that's actually 
not only tolerated, but is welcome and is really what we've sort of structured the entirety of rabbinic Judaism around is around this continued process of reading and asking questions and interpreting and seeking to find new meaning. Right. And maybe and that's canonization. It's rereading and rereading. There are people who read Lord of the Rings every year. There are people who read Harry Potter every year. There are people who watch the entire nine film Skywalker saga of Star Wars every year. Mm -hmm. And they do it on, maybe it's on May the 4th, which is Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Or maybe it's on May 25th, which was the release date of Star Wars Episode Four. Not called that on that first day, but you know, there are certain dates that have become canonical mm. rituals i don't know if any lord of the ring dates but you know star wars has some dates attached to it may the fourth is kind of a new one hmm. but it, it, right it, it's the rereading and the text hasn't changed but i've changed exactly and then it's the not even like fan fiction in like the light way of just finding meaning in it or feeling connected to a certain passage or a certain scene that didn't strike you that way last year mm -hmm. right that's maybe what canonization means because you're so familiar with it that you begin to notice how you've changed in relation to the mm -hmm. text itself and then you learn about yourself in some way that mm -hmm. reciprocal process where scripture does change but only because you've changed wow that's really beautiful yeah like, like, I used to see myself as Isaac at the Binding of Isaac and later as Abraham. Like, oh, I could see why you want to kill your kid. I love my children. <laughs> I love my children. love my children. But, I, but seeing it as a, as, a, as a young person versus seeing it as a parent, very mm -hmm. different text. Just for mm -hmm. one small example. Yeah. There's so many different ways as I've gone through, you know, different s stages in life that the way that I relate to characters. I mean, even the way that I relate to God definitely changes and For sure. yeah that's a really i think wonderful way of putting it less the wanting to kill your children part but the but, <laughs> no. well the things that we do in life that sometimes meet our needs and not our children's needs to interpret it that way you know because mm -hmm. they don't talk after that something happens so whatever abraham does for work you know ruins the family structure anyway so Abraham okay. the workaholic, totally a way to read Abraham. Yeah, definitely. So we could certainly go on about this forever because that's what we do. But we're going <laughs> to like make a and put an ellipsis there to dot 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 because there's a lot we raise, a lot to talk about. But hopefully the people can hear and see there's so there's so many points of connection between sci-fi and fantasy literature, sacred literature, and the processes through which they are beloved and expanded upon that are just so interesting. Yes, definitely. So from the Geniza, we're from going the Geniza. to each take something from the past or lesser known past of the genres that we're looking at. And Andrew, what yeah. would you like to pull out of the Geniza today? I want to pull out of the Geniza every Exodus adaptation ever. What they got right, what they got wrong, and why I am boycotting Exodus movies until they fix their problems. I'm talking okay. about, yeah, boycotting. DeMille's Ten Commandments, black and white and color. DreamWorks, Prince of Egypt, my favorite. Orson Scott Card's Stone Tables, a must read. 
Zora Neale Hurston's Moses Man of the Mountain, also a must read. And I did not see Christian Bale's Exodus, Gods and Kings, because it did not look good. Here's what they get right. The battle between God and Pharaoh, yes. Between the God of life and the Egyptian culture surrounding death, that's a battle between two worldviews, which I learned from my teacher, Rabbi Ismar Shorsh. It is set in Egypt, it's got Moses, it's got God, it's got Pharaoh, plays, going through the Reed Sea, that's all great. One thing I love that they all kind of get right is it is not clear when Moses learns he is an Israelite. And I love how each of those adaptations places that moment and how each narrative adaptation is shaped by when that realization takes place. I think that's fascinating. Orson Scott Cards, for example, he always knows. He never doesn't know. It's why he stutters, because he's code switching between Hebrew and Egyptian, because no one sees him as really being part of them. You're part of those people. It's great. In Hurston's version, he never figures it out, ever. And in every version, it's somewhere in between. I love that. Here's what they get horribly wrong. They never depict Aaron and Moses as a team, ever. That is horribly wrong. They never approach Pharaoh alone. They're always a pair. Moses whispers in Aaron's ear. Aaron speaks. Pharaoh responds. No one gets that right. I'm sick of that. Done. Moses never says, let my people go forever. No one ever says that in the Torah. It's always, let my people go for one week. It's never the full noble request to free the slaves. He never asked for that. We know that's the plan. He never asks for it. He says, we're going to spend three days walking into the wilderness. We're going to worship God for one day. And then we're going to come back. We would like a one-week vacation. And Pharaoh says, no. All ten plagues were just a refusal for a one-week vacation. That's it. He would never have said yes to freedom for good. That's ridiculous. The plan of the burning bushes, we're going to lie to Pharaoh. Here's the lie we're going to tell. And then when we finally go, we're going to run for it. Which is hmm. then is why when Pharaoh says, leave your children here, that actually is not insane. Pharaoh says, we'll do the child care. You go, you go be adults <laughs> for a week. We will babysit. And Moses says, no, nope, mm. we're all going. It's not they would abandon the children. That's ridiculous. So mm. they never get that right. So I will not see any other films until it is Moses and Aaron as a team. And they lie to Pharaoh's face the entire time. And Pharaoh has all 10 plagues happen because he will not give them a one-week vacation. I could probably weigh in here, but what I wanted to pull out of the Geniza this time is the Harry Potter books in particular. So we, we mentioned Harry Potter a little bit earlier on. And one thing that we didn't mention in our discussion, but that's come up in some of our other conversations is the question of authorship and do works sort of stand alone from their authors, a number of the authors, JK Rowling, Orson Scott Card are kind of a, subject of a lot of controversy because of some of the viewpoints that they have publicly shared that some of their fans are very troubled by. 
And so this is sort of an active question that's out there is, can the work be, be separated from the author? Might be interesting for us to engage with at a future time, but just wanted to make sure that that was kind of acknowledged here. So I've been reading the, beginning to read the Harry Potter books with my almost eight-year-old. And it's really interesting. I haven't read, you know, any of them in, in a very long time and see what I remember more clearly because I, you know, it's easier to commit to rewatching a two hour movie than to reading a bunch of books over and over again. I tend not to be a, a much of a rereader of fiction, but noticing the differences between the books and the movies in particular. So one of the things that, that really stood out to me is the way that I think all of the characters in particular, Ron, are flattened and dumbed down, like the kid characters, right? Like in in the book, in the movies, you know, Ron and Harry and Hermione are all virtuous children who, you know, are clearly on the side of good and never say anything nasty to anyone and you know, are of course like the kids that you would, would, you know, get along with and want to be friends with. In the books, you know, they're a little bit more sassy, particularly Ron. He really stands up for and protects Harry in, in ways that I don't really recall seeing in the movies. And so, you know, what the, the agreement that I've made with, with my son is that we're going to read each book and then watch the movie afterward to then discuss what we think about the adaptation, which I think will be fun and very much in line with a lot of our conversation today of interpreting and engaging. And we'll, we'll see how that goes. And I think that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, it's a shame what they did to Ron in the movies, for sure. They kind of took the best of Ron and put everything into Hermione, who's also mm -hmm. great. It just, yeah, I wish they had done Ron justice. And Rupert Grint's a great actor. He would have done great yeah. with, with, with Ron as he is in the books. He would have been phenomenal. Yeah. Is Harry Potter 8 part of the canon? The, mm. the play and the question of like is something new for a particular sci-fi or fantasy property is it canonical is an mm. interesting question that you know or is it like a fan fiction like jk rowling didn't right. write it she approved of it but is it official and it's always an interesting mm -hmm. question you know, with disney and star wars they kind of like cut loose you know dozens of books called them mm -hmm. legends they go we're not beholden to any of this yeah. Here's the new here's the new core canon, but we're gonna pull yeah. from that as we want. Makes me and I'm going backwards now a little bit, but they kind of <laughs> they'll pull from legends whatever they want into right. the new canon. It's like the rabbis pulling from old, old second temple literature into Midrash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll make yeah. things canon. But yeah, but Harry Potter 8 definitely raises that question for me. Right. Who determines what you know what's in what's out where who yeah are, i mean who are the boundary setters yeah yeah i mean as you were saying that though i kind of like thought about like there could be different categories right you you mentioned the second temple literature that's not included in the hebrew bible and pulling from that what i was thinking about was okay maybe it's like the different levels of 
authority that we ascribe to the various sections of Tanakh, right? So we have Torah and that's understood to be like, okay, this is direct revelation from God, which is Nevi'im. So prophets, okay, the prophets are getting a communication from God, which they are communicating to people, but it's not seen as being on quite the same level. So I don't know, or is the approved author like a prophet or is the approved author, or is this sort of more like Ketuvim? Like, okay, it's part of the canon. Like, you know, it's, it's recognized as not being quite of the same status. It doesn't, it's not, you know, a directly revealed text, right. but, it's a divinely but it's still canonical. It's divinely inspired. It's, inspired. it's canonical. It's fan fiction written with Ruach HaKodesh. The same inspiration as the original, therefore it has canonical status. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I'm still going to say, like, I would put fan fiction definitely in the Midrash category. And we can talk about, okay, is Midrash divinely inspired? Like, what makes something Midrash as opposed to just, like, a fun story? I, yeah, I don't know. Well, we could we could go into it and hash it out. We but... certainly could. That's more of, we'll like, a Shibuot theme. Mm, definitely. <laughs> Possible okay. topic or a future topic, which we'll put that in the parking lot for later. Okay, so I think this concludes our episode about storytelling. So thank you, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock, for another great conversation. Yeah, and thank you, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone, for saying our names uh, in only formal fashion. Yes, we have to do it in the podcast voice. That's the way it must be done. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more next month. Our next episode will focus on the theme of speculative fiction and futurism. And be time to come out a little after Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel's 75th Independence Day. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. And thank you for all of our positive reviews so far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. And me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. We recorded on Zoom and edited it using Descripts. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And we sign off with May, May the Moshim be with you. <laughs>